today, I want to talk about partnership. During the summer of 1904, an unlikely partnership was formed at the World's Fair in St. Louis. The summer was unusually hot, and people were searching the fair for something to help cool them off. A vendor named Arnold had just what they were looking for, ice cream. People lined up for what seemed like miles to get some of his cool, satisfying ice cream. But there was one problem. Arnold was not prepared for the demand and ran out of paper bowls. Next to Arnold's ice cream booth was a man named Ernest, a pastry chef who was making a Persian wafer dessert. Ernest had a problem. His pastry was not selling. He noticed the problem Arnold was having and took some warm pastry and rolled it into a cone shape and went over and showed Arnold Arnold, how the cone could hold a scoop of ice cream. Whoops, went too far. Be patient. On that hot day, during the World's Fair in St. Louis, the wafer ice cream cone was born, becoming a, because a partnership was formed. So what is a partnership? Where two or more parties, people, work together to achieve a common goal. Now Arnold and Ernest both wanted to sell their products and make money. They each brought something different to the project, but by working together, they achieved that goal. It was a partnership. And in honour of Father's Day, my next little illustration is about a dad. Not all partnerships are between people who can bring an equal contribution. When a dad and his little son are working on a project together, they both want the same outcome, but the father brings the expertise and the materials, whereas his son may bring the enthusiasm and the effort. Partnerships have the ability to change not only the lives of people involved in them, but also the lives of those around them. In Exodus, we have a little story that gives us an example of partnerships. During the 40 years that the... Uh, people of Israel were in the wilderness. They came under attack now and then from other nations. So while the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Here yeah, we've got some warriors attacking. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' armour soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on and they stood on each side of Moses holding up his hands so his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, 
Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. So in these five verses, we've got four, four types of partnerships. It was kind of all one big partnership in one way, but we can look at four different bits of it. There's God and Moses. I reckon Moses went to God and said, Help! What do we do? And God told Moses what to do. And I just noticed, he says, I'll hold up the staff of God. He didn't say my staff. It was that staff that had done those miracles in Egypt. It was that staff that he held over the Red Sea and the waters parted. Now that was a partnership, wasn't it? He held out the staff and God parted the waters. God could have supernaturally intervened in this case, but he chose to work with his partner Moses. And then there's a partnership between Moses and Joshua. Joshua did his part and Moses did his. They both had the same goal. They both wanted to beat the Amalekites to protect the people of Israel, but they had different roles. Moses was to go up on the mountain, Joshua was to fight the battle. Then there's a partnership between Joshua and his men. They weren't a trained army, they were just ordinary men, ex-slaves, volunteers, partnering with Joshua to face a problem. They wanted to protect themselves and their wives and their children, so they were willing to go out and fight. Aaron, Hur and Moses had a partnership up on the mountain. Moses couldn't do it all on his own. But they too had that same goal. They wanted to protect the Israelites. They wanted to see the Amalekites beaten. So they worked together to get the job done. Partnerships uh, have the ability to change lives. They change the lives of those people. They all had to work together. They all worked in partnership. And it changed their lives. Instead of becoming slaves to the Amalekites, they continued on their journey with God. And we were made to be partners with God. Uh, in ancient Babylon and Mesopotamia, in their creation stories, they've got all these gods and they fought and they squabbled and along the way they made water and made land and made air and plants and animals. And uh, eventually, they wanted some servants, and none of these animals was any good for it, so they made men. So that's their, their creation story they had back there. But the Hebrew creation story is quite different. God made man to partner with him in running this world that he created. Genesis chapter 1 says, God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the air, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, multiply. fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all the animals. So we, you and me, were made in God's image 
we were made to govern the earth and to reign in this world. God had a purpose out of all creation. He made people to work together with him to achieve a wonderful world.
Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus. He will keep you strong to the end, so you'll be free from all blame on the day when Jesus Christ returns. God will do this, for he is faithful to do what he says, and he has invited you into partnership with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I forget that he's my partner, my senior partner, and I think I have to manage on my own. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labour in vain. I'm his partner in all of my life. If you think of yourself as the little kid, how's he going to do the project on his own? Unless that's there. He's could work away with his hammer and his nails and do all sorts, but he's not going to achieve what he wants to achieve without that help. Whatever we need to do, whatever we do, we need to think of doing it in partnership with Jesus. And if we're to think like that, we need to change some of our ideas about God. I tend to think he's only interested in the spiritual part of my life, the worship, the church stuff like we're doing here today. Why would God be interested in the mundane things like doing shopping and cooking and cleaning and fixing cars and growing food and mowing the lawn? What's, where does that fit into it? In Colossians it says, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then in verse 23, he's talking to slaves. He says, work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that the master you are serving is Christ. So where he's talking to slaves, they're not people doing church work. They're people doing the most menial tasks of everyday life. How are they partnering with Jesus to see his kingdom come? Like Brenton was talking about this morning, Jesus shows us what God is like. As you read the Gospels, check out the paths in between where Jesus is teaching or where the big events are and have a look at the little bits in between of Jesus' life. Was, did Jesus have a secular life, separate from his spiritual one? Or was his whole life a partnership with his father? What happens when I don't work in partnership with Jesus? What happens when it's something I don't want to do? When I resent it? What happens when I get angry? Usually I become vulnerable to the enemy's accusations and lies. Look what you've done now. You've failed again. How can you talk to others about God when you constantly mess up? What's the point of all this? He may bring different ones to you, but he brings lies and accusations specifically designed for you. When we don't work with the Lord, he gets in there real quick. 
I find it really difficult to remember that God's interested in my ordinary everyday life. Not my partnership doesn't stop because I'm not doing spiritual stuff. There was a little guy, a monk, who lived in the 1600s, who spent his days in the monastery kitchen. For 30 years, he spent his time cooking, cleaning, chopping food, preparing food for the rest of the monastery. But he became famous because he wrote, a, not exactly a book, he, his, his writings have been put into a book called Practicing the Presence of God. He said he grew to feel closer to God among the pots and pans than in the chapel because he spent all his day talking to God while he was cooking. But I reckon it must have been easier for him than it is for us now with our TV and computers and emails and Facebook and mobile phones and YouTube and everything that bombards us with stuff all the time, other voices. Sometimes we just need to be quiet and listen to God's voice in the stillness. But we have a partnership with each other as well, as well as our partnership with God. Acts 2 talks about the early church. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. They worshipped together in the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. The word fellowship in this verse is the word koinonia, which means joint participation or community or partnership or intimacy as well as fellowship. So it's quite reasonable to say they had a partnership together. They had a common goal. Why did they spend so much time together? It sounds like they never did anything else when you read it in the scripture. But of course they had to continue to make the living. They had to do the mundane things of life. But their priority for their free time was their partnership with each other as a Christian community. Would it be tricky for the slaves they had to work from sunup to sundown for their masters and often later, but they had to find a little bit of time where they could get together with other Christians and have fellowship. And their fellowship didn't stop them from sharing the good news with others. Luke tells us each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And the early church was unique in its day, a unique religion, because as a community they welcomed everyone. No matter what their status, the rich, the poor, the labourers and the slaves all shared meals together, which was something that was not done amongst any of the other religions. Even the Jews were very particular about who they ate with. Uh, they were a diverse, multicultural lot. And they were a people working in partnership with God and each other all bringing different contributions to their common purpose. At a meeting of the American Psychological Association, Jack Lipton, a psychologist at Union College, and R. Scott, a graduate student at Columbia University, presented their findings 
on how members of the various sections of 11 major symphony orchestras perceived each other. The percussionists were viewed as insensitive, unintelligent and hard of hearing, yet fun-loving. That's the guy that plays the drums. The string players were seen as arrogant, stuffy and unathletic. The orchestra members overwhelmingly chose loud as the primary adjective to describe the brass players. Woodwind players seem to be held in the highest esteem, described as quiet, meticulous, though a bit egotistical. Interesting findings to say the least. With such widely divergent personalities and perceptions, how could an orchestra ever come together to make such wonderful music? The answer is simple. Regardless of how those musicians view each other, they subordinate their feelings of biases to the leadership of the conductor. Under his guidance, they play beautiful music. Going back to that verse that we read in 1 Corinthians, if we could perhaps put, go back to that uh, slide, just for a moment. But now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says and he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have every gift we need to partner with Jesus. Wow, I don't feel like that most of the time. But that's his promise. That's what he says. He's given us every gift that we need. And it struck me recently that the gifts the Holy Spirit gives me, those ones listed by Paul in Corinthians, are not happiness, wealth, comfort, financial security, my right to be free from pain and difficulties, they would have been nice gifts, wouldn't they? <laughs> but he says, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives are the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, gift of faith, prophecy, healing, miracles, discernment of spirits, tongues and interpretation. Hey, they're all gifts for other people. Paul says they're given for encouraging and blessing others. I can benefit from them myself, but only in my partnership with the body of Christ. Except the gift of tongues that I can use in my private prayer time to build up my spirit. But apart from that, the, the gifts are for encouraging and blessing others. They can also be used for sharing the good news and blessing other people outside of the church. They're part of our partnership with Jesus to be used to see his kingdom come here on earth. Our senior partner gives them as they are needed. Our part is to be willing to use them. That can be a challenge. You may not think you're very important in this partnership that we have together as the church. You may think you're not providing much. But uh, I read uh, this little story which I thought illustrates really well 
says, in March 1981, President Reagan was shot by John Hinckley Jr. and was hospitalised for several weeks. Although Reagan was the nation's chief executive, his hospitalisation had little impact on the nation's activities. Government continued on. On the other hand, suppose the garbage collectors of this country went on strike, as they did in 1986 in Philadelphia. That city was not only in a literal mess, but the pile of decaying trash quickly became a health hazard. A three-week nationwide strike would paralyse the country. Who's more important, the president or the garbage collectors? In the body of Christ, seemingly insignificant people are urgently needed. As Paul reminds us, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So, we are created for partnership with God and with his people. We have a common purpose to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We are a lot like that father and son working on their project. Jesus brings the expertise and the power. We bring the enthusiasm and the effort. We have the privilege to partner with our loving, gracious, heavenly father. Let's determine to work in partnership with Jesus in the everyday things this week and see what happens. Perhaps it will affect our other partnerships as well. Lord, we do thank you that we have that privilege to work with you. And we ask you to help us, Lord, help us this week to remember that you are our partner in this what we think of as spiritual things, but also in everything, Lord. Our whole life, we want to live in partnership with you and see your kingdom come. Thank you, Lord. Amen.